You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All righty, let's get started. Please make your way to your seats and uh, please continue those conversations after the service. Don't rush, rush out the door. Go back to whatever you're chatting about and, and meet someone new. Uh, we're going to be in the book of James this morning, as we have been, and that's towards the end of your Bible. It's right after the book of Hebrews, right before 1 Peter, and so you can be turning to James chapter 1 now. We do have um, these James scripture journals, um, probably some in the back, so if you'd like one of those to take notes on or to doodle, uh, like circle, underline, highlight, draw, draw arrows and things like that, I really appreciate having that, and so that's available to you as well. Uh, So like I said, today's sermon text will be in James chapter 1, and I'd really like you to have a Bible in front of you, whether it's um, the one that you found under your seat or the one you brought or on your phone or something like that. Uh, Not just because um, the only authority I have is is what comes from the Word of God. Just because I'm standing up here in front of you doesn't mean you have to listen to me. Uh, Really, everything I say ought to come from the text, and you should be making sure that everything I say is grounded in the text and comes from the text, but also... Today's passage is like a particularly tangly passage. Uh, when I was meeting with Josh on Monday, that's a good adjective he used to describe it. And then as soon as I started sermon prep, it really felt that way too. Um, yeah, imagine someone's hair being like matted, tangled up, and you need to kind of brush it out in order to get out all the individual, individual strands. Uh, James just has this way, as we've seen, and we're going to continue to see, just kind of spiraling deeper and deeper on these themes he's setting up. And he'll move on to the next session while also tying back to the last section and setting you up for future ones. And so I want you to be able to see that for yourself in the text today. And hopefully, in addition to kind of drawing out of the text what God has for us, we'll also get to practice just that skill of going slow, reading deeply, thinking through how each part of each verse relates to the others, and uh, and that'll be good for us. So... Let me read verses 19 to 26. This is James chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, and then I'll pray for us. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but for, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guard me from error in this time, help me to expound the text as James originally meant it, and apply it to our lives in a way that is, is meaningful and forceful. Would your word work now to implant the seed of faith deep in the hearts uh, of all of us, and particularly those who do not yet believe? Pray that you would convict us of sin and righteousness as we hear your word today, and just as Joseph asked, to, con- to consider your ways before our ways, and be willing to submit to you as king, the leader of our life, now and always. Amen. So if you look at the very first verse, 19, James starts this section with, know this, my beloved brothers. 
And this phrase, my beloved brothers or my brothers, is going to come up pretty frequently. And it's really like a trigger of, hey, I'm moving on to a new section. We've already seen it, actually. If you look up at verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then James went on to talk about good and perfect gifts coming down from below. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my brothers. And then he's going to begin talking about the sin of partiality. If you look at chapter 2, 14, he's going to say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? And then he's going to go explain you know, the, the tension there between faith and works, or faith without works. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And then he's going to spend most of that chapter talking about the tongue and how dangerous it is. So pick up on those things as you read your Bible, that those are little verbal cues can help you trigger you to go, okay, new section here. And it helps to organize, organize the letter. James begins this section in verse 19 with a command to let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But it's a little odd at least I thought when I first looked at this, that he would contrast quick to hear with slow to anger. And then if you look at verse 21, his conclusion is, therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And that's the tangled mess I'm talking about. It doesn't seem immediately obvious, like why that conclusion follows from verses 19 and 20. It seems like there's a little bit of a a lack of unity there. It's kind of hard to understand why you laid your argument out that way. And so every time you encounter something like this in God's word, you want to slow down and assume you could not have written this better than James. Assume that there's unity, even if you feel like there isn't. And let that arrest you in your reading and stop and slow down and really wrestle with it until you've brushed through the passage and you've got the tangled mess sorted out and you kind of understand how it actually works in James' you know, original intent there. So start in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This proverb has so much in common with the entire Jewish wisdom literature tradition. Going back to books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, other books were written uh, in between the Old and New Testament, like the, the book called Sirach, which is uh, like a lot like the book of Proverbs. And all these all these books have a very widespread tradition of emphasizing that hasty speech is not good. In fact, it can be quite destructive. So here's some examples just from the Proverbs. You don't need to turn here. I'm going to read these to you. If you wanted to visit them later, you can write them down or just come ask me after the service. But listen to these and how they have uncommon with James' proverb. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 15.2 The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly, or some translations say gush folly, like a fountain. And Proverbs 29.20 Do you see a wise man, sorry, a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So very strong words about being quick to speak and not slow to listen, and it's tied to foolishness. And James is picking up on this, drawing from it, but he's going to kind of develop it in his own way. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. With the injunction of anger in opposition to hearing, and with what's going to come in verse 21, I think James is setting up a dichotomy here between humility 
and arrogance or pride. A humble person is quick to hear. They assume that they have something to learn. They're teachable and open to change. And then either the proud person is quick to speak, they try to instruct others when they really should be instructed themselves, they never stop to listen, they always have something to say, and they have a way of convincing themselves that maybe they're special and God's word doesn't really apply to them. Or the proud person is quick to anger. They're insulted whenever demands are made of them. They accuse others of being judgy when they themselves judge others harshly. And then they defend their ego with harsh or cruel words or sometimes even with violence. And so James goes on to say in verse 20, if you look at that, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God here is God's own moral character, his, his standard of virtue and character and behavior that he expects us to live up to. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And God himself is slow to anger. In Exodus 34, 6, this should ring, ring in your mind because uh, Josh actually recited it this morning after the prayer of confession. God, who calls himself Yahweh in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew word for I am, he, he, com- he describes himself this way, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. So like later authors, like the author of of the psalm that uh, Josh read, will quote it up to 22 times. So overwhelmingly, the Old Testament says this is what God is like, slow to anger and forgiving and full of compassion and mercy. And we are to be like God, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God does get angry, but he gets angry at things like covenant breaking or injustice or wickedness and evil deeds that harm others and slander his name. But God is slow in his anger and he's really quick to forgive and slow to bring judgment. How patient was he with Israel for centuries of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king giving them a chance to relent. He sent dozens of prophets to turn them back to him before he finally resulted, um, resorted to judgment. But on the other hand, human anger is usually a reaction to our own pride being wounded. Right? It's a defense of our ego or a sense of entitlement maybe that we deserve to be treated away or we deserve something and someone has violated our rights uh, or privileges that we are holding onto. And that kind of anger, James says, will never satisfy the righteousness of God. It will never lead us to living up to God's high moral standards. James is really making an appeal to our new identity in Christ. Right? If God was slow in visiting judgment on you, slow to get angry with you and your sin, but then the moment you turn to Christ in faith, he, he justified you, he forgave you, and considered you righteous because of what God has done, sorry, what Christ has done, then why would you not extend the same behavior towards others? Right? There's no room for ego in the Christian life. Ephesians 2 teaches that all of us were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins and slaves of Satan. Anybody proud about that? Anybody want to boast in their death of sin? Right? Anyone want to brag about the miserable wretch they were before their life in Christ? No, we have no room to boast. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 2 is to say that God saved us by grace and faith. Therefore, there's no boasting. There's no room for pride and being angry in the Christian life. But the Father of lights brought us forth. He gave us birth. We, we learned about last week. He gave us new life by his word of truth. And so there's no room for boasting in that because who accomplished that? Who brought you to life if you're in Christ? The Father of lights did. You, you had no say in that. You don't decide when you're born physically. 
You don't decide when you're born spiritually. And so we should, instead of getting angry with those who offend us, we should rather pity them and pray for them, as Christ also instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount. So James concludes this short proverb in verse 21 with a conclusion word, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. In doing this, I think he further develops what it means to be quick to hear, but slow to speak, slow to anger. And here's where I think we need to get our brushes out to entangle things a little bit. First, putting off sin is a common expression throughout the New Testament. It's used as a metaphor, like taking off your clothes, to put away, take off your sin, and put on Christ. And very frequently, that's tied to baptism. Baptism is a symbol of that, your old life being washed away and receiving a new life in Christ, being raised to new life through him. And this happens when we receive the gospel, which is the implanted word, right? It's a concept that James has already introduced. Look up at verse 18. God, the Father of lights, brought us forth by the word of truth. That's when you were conceived, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so in the context of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, we can now circle back to that and interpret it through the lens of being quick to hear the word of truth and slow to speak to it or slow to get angry about it. What does it mean to be quick to hear the gospel? I think that's what James is asking to some degree. The gospel is, you're a rebel sinner, deserving of hell and judgment, but God will forgive you and give you a new life if you turn to Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Quick to hear would be letting that strike you as true. Not putting up a fight, not balking at it, but saying, absolutely, I'm in desperate need of a Savior. It's with all meekness and humility and accepting both the hard judgment against your life, that you've sinned and rebelled against God, you're a cosmic criminal deserving of justice, but also receiving the offer of mercy with thanksgiving and joy. That's what it means to be quick to hear the gospel. Quick to speak to the gospel, quick to speak back against it, would sound something like this. Well, that seems a little harsh, but it's not my fault that I'm addicted. But my sin isn't that bad. But my feelings tell me that my sin's actually good. But, 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 excuses, excuses, excuses. That's what it means to be slow, quick to speak back against the gospel when you hear it, to try to defend yourself, right? And then quick to anger when you hear the gospel would sound something like, how dare you stand in judgment over me in my life? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Don't you dare tell me to bend the knee to King Jesus. And so James, he's tying in that previous section from verse 18 about what it means to be brought forth by the Father of lights through the word of truth. And he's saying, you need to receive with meekness, humility. You need to be quick to hear the gospel, the word of truth, the good news that Christ has come to provide a way so that rebel sinners can be forgiven and brought close to God. And you can't accept the gospel if you're quick to speak against it or you're quick to anger. With your hand over your mouth, you must accept it with meekness and humility, James is saying in verse 21. And James says something really puzzling here. He already said that God brought us forth, past tense, by the word of truth. Verse 18. And now he asks us to receive, present tense, the implanted word. That actually doesn't make sense. It seems like there's, that already happened. The word's already there. 
It's already implanted in our hearts. What do you mean I need to receive it again? To to borrow an illustration from John Piper I heard, it'd be like saying, receive your kidneys. You already have kidneys. I don't need any more kidneys. (laughs) Maybe some of you do, but I don't need any more kidneys. Like I've already got them. I'm good to go. And so instead of thinking of James saying something like that, like I've already been born again. I've already been brought forth by the word of truth. I need to receive it again. No, think of it like this. Like, breathe, receive oxygen. You're alive. You have breath in your lungs, but you can't just go and be done and no longer accept breath. Like, you have to keep on breathing. You have to keep on breathing and receiving oxygen to stay alive. And I think this is what James means. The word's already implanted, but you need to keep receiving it over and over and over again. You're never done receiving the implanted word. It is already there, but you have to open yourself up to receive it continually with meekness and humility which is a common theme, especially throughout Hebrews, but most of the New Testament, of needing to persevere in faith. It's not enough to just pray a prayer, to get baptized, to go to church, to grow up Christian. We need to persevere in God. Continue to save me. Continue to pour your word into my heart. Continue to grow the gospel in my life, in every area. Convict me of sin so that more and more and more and more I look like Christ. That's what I think James means here by needing to receive the implanted word, which is already there, with meekness, because it's able to save our souls. The salvation James has in view here isn't just justification. That is God declaring you righteous because of your faith in Christ. That's a, that's a single moment in your life when you're born again, and you place your faith in Christ, God declares you righteous. But salvation is more than that. Salvation is All right, now how do I live? How do I follow Christ? What does it mean to be his disciple? And it goes all the way into our final resurrection and new life in the new heavens and new earth. And so this means we need to be pleading with God to do his work on us as a vine dresser prunes a grapevine, letting him wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to cut away all the wicked, sinful parts of our life. It means asking for him to give you the faith to wholly accept Christ and savor everything the Word of God teaches, even the hard parts that rub you the wrong way. It means asking Him to mold the shape of your heart such that it loves what God loves. It delights in His mercies. It clings to His promises. And it yearns for His justice. Now, the whole rest of the letter, it already has been, but it's going to be filled with commands or imperatives. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's going to be really easy, we'll see in the very next passage, to accuse James of this kind of legalism, that you're saved, sure, you've placed your faith in Christ, but now you need to add your own good works and good deeds to what Christ has done. But don't do that, because remember right here where James started. It starts with meekness, humility, receive the word implanted. That is the root out of which all the other fruit will grow. And so we need to keep that in mind in the coming weeks when we get to James chapter 2. So then turn to verse 22 with me. James throws kind of a curveball here. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Like what? You're just telling us how important it is to to be quiet. Oh, look at that. To be quiet, to listen with meekness. And now he says, but don't just do that. Like that's not enough. You also need to be a doer of the word. All right? This is very, very typical of James. To shift topics 
but in such a way that he's spiraling back to what he just talked about, which is what makes this, feel, this whole letter feel like it doesn't have just an obvious structure to it. It's not very linear. It's a spiral as James comes back over and over to develop these topics more and more. And so what he's going to claim here is that if you've really accepted God's word and believed it, you will do what it says. And it has very strong echoes of something we heard just this summer as we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need to turn here with me if you don't want to, but I'm going to be in Matthew 7. This is how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here with us, you'll remember this. Listen to James just almost quoting Jesus here. This is Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So if you're going to receive the implanted word, it's necessarily, Jesus says, and now James says, going to cause you to take action, to kill sin and pursue righteousness in your life. Jesus said if we're going to follow him, we have to be ready to take up our cross and come after him. Following isn't passive, but active. If you're sitting on the sidelines claiming to be a follower of Christ, but your life isn't marked by obedience, then it's hard to say that you've really received the word of truth with meekness and humility and accepted what it has to say. You're either refusing to submit some area of your life to the lordship of Christ, or you're sitting in judgment over the word and deciding when you're going to let it tell you what to do. You're quick to speak, but you're slow to hear. And so James uses a metaphor of a mirror to explain this. Look now at verse, I'll start in 22 again. Look at, look at these three verses. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For, now here's the metaphor. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Mere hearers are like people who look into mirrors and forget what they saw. That's, that's the point. Here's how the metaphor works, right? What do you use a mirror for? What do, you, what do you like when you roll out of bed in the morning, right? Bedhead, bad breath, a little disheveled, stubble all over your face. So what do you use a mirror for? Use a mirror to fix some kind of flaw, right? Whether you're trimming your eyebrows or getting a piece of chicken out of your teeth, right? Or adding some makeup to cover up some blemishes or you're shaving your patchy neck beard. You use a mirror to fix some kind of perceived flaw with your face, right? And so this is the mirror that is the word of truth which James now, he, he changes his language to calling it the law, the perfect law, the law of liberty. And here's what it's designed to do. You hold up the mirror of God's word and you stare into it and you see God's righteous standard, right? The righteousness of God is revealed here. We know already that anger, human anger rarely measures up to the righteousness of God, but there's so many other things. So you look into this mirror and it reveals all the areas in your life that you still need the sanctifying grace of God, right? Salvation's more than just being declared righteous, but now being made righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit day by day as we're conformed to the image of Christ. And so, mere hearers look into the mirror. They hear the law, 
of God. And then they walk away and forget what it had to say to them. And they don't make any chances, changes. They're hearers, they heard it, but they're not doers. Right? They never really receive it. The problem with only hearing the word and not doing it is a failure to deal with your character flaws, areas of sin in your life. But doers, James says, persevere. There's that, that same theme we've seen three times now of steadfastness, of perseverance in the midst of trial, then temptation. And now it's doers of the word persevere in staring at this even when it gets hard and it starts poking parts of your life that you really like or you're really proud of or you're really trusting in. And it starts poking that area of your life saying, that's not righteous, that's sin, that doesn't glorify God. And doers of the word persevere in saying, okay, with humility, I'm going to receive that and change and do what it says, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. They persevere in putting off their old self, verse 21, their old sins. They take that off, those things that they were enslaved to. And then here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You don't need to turn there, but listen to how it echoes themes all the way back to 12 to 15, 19 to 21, and what we just saw in 22 to 24. There's so many tie-ins here. This is Ephesians 4. Put off your old self, right, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. That's a process. We do that day by day. Just as you get up in the morning and renew your face using the mirror, we should get up every morning and renew our minds, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, and put on our new self in the likeness of Christ and righteousness through the mirror of God's word. But why exactly does James call this a law of liberty? Ask yourself that question, because heaping up rules, commandments, to-do lists, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do that, does that sound like liberty to you? Does that sound like freedom? To most of us, no, and in many instances, it's not. So then, what is the nature of true freedom if it's not getting to do whatever you like? (laughs) And therein lies the issue. If you have an old heart, a fleshly heart, a sinful heart, you haven't been born again, the Father of lights hasn't brought you forth by the implanted word, then your desires and God's desires are not in sync. He says, do this, and you really don't want to do that, right? Because we love, we're we're enticed after our own desires, James says back in, in chapter one we saw a couple weeks ago. But if God brings you forth by his word of truth and he implants the word in heart, in your heart, then all of a sudden, your heart begins to beat for God. And it becomes easier to trust him and to follow him. And all of his commandments now appear to be the path of life that leads to all happiness and blessedness. That was exactly the promise of the new covenant. We're, we're learning about covenant in our Sunday school class. right? We just started this morning. In Ezekiel 36, 26, here's what God promises to his people who have for centuries ignored his law and failed to live up to, uh, to his law of liberty. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The law of liberty that James is talking about is none other than the moral law of God, 
which Christ fulfills and just renews in the new covenant, God didn't promise, I'll send Jesus and then I'll stop caring about righteousness and how you live life and you can just keep on sinning. That wasn't the promise of the new covenant. Instead, he promised to actually give us the power to follow him with new hearts and new spirits. The promise of the new covenant isn't that you're no longer uh, required to keep the law. It's that you'll actually delight to do so. It's that after he has forgiven you, through your faith and trust in Christ's perfect law-keeping and then the gift of the Holy Spirit, he will cause you to love God's law and to keep it. Free wills may be the ability to choose good or evil, but true freedom is the inability to do evil, to no longer fear returning to a yoke of slavery to sin. That's true freedom. Here's how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119. Listen to this here. This, this whole psalm, captures this, but this is just maybe the juiciest part that really relates to what we're reading today. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and I will not be put to shame for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love that I may meditate on your decrees. Does that sound like a slave or a free man? Right? Does that sound like God's laws are burdensome or a delight? God's law was always meant to unleash his people from slavery to sin and free them to love their neighbor and to love God and to live a good life and seek true goodness and be rewarded for it. But under the old covenant, Paul tells us this in Romans 9, verse 32, that Israel didn't pursue the law by faith, but as a work, as a chore. They never saw God's law like the psalmist did here. And so they did not with meekness receive the law written on tablets of stone, and instead they grumbled and rebelled against it. So God promised to enact a new covenant where he would write the law on their hearts. The Father of lights brings us forth by his own will, by sending his Holy Spirit to free our wills that are enslaved to sin, to free them from hatred and perversion and rampant wickedness, so that we can say with the psalmist, I delight in your commands because I love them. That's what James means here in verse 25 by the law of liberty. That's why God's law is actually really freeing for us. So I would encourage all of you to go meditate on Psalm 119 this week. It's a Hebrew poem, and it has 22 stanzas, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And like the first stanza, all the lines start with Aleph. And the second stanza, all the lines start with Bet. But just go read maybe like three stanzas a day. Do this with your family around the dinner table. Do this in your morning devotional time, or something like that. And just listen and marvel at the fact that the longest section of Scripture, Psalm 19 is the biggest chapter in your whole Bible. The longest section of Scripture is about how good and beautiful God's laws are. That would be looking into the mirror, the law of liberty, and asking God to transform us and receive with meekness his implanted word. And so finally, James takes this concept of looking into the mirror of the law of liberty, and he comes back to his original command from verse 19, which was be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
And now look at verse 26. James states, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A bridle is like a set of straps that you use. It goes over a horse's muzzle so that you can attach reins and things like that and steer and direct and, con- and control the horse, right? And so if you're not slow to speak or slow to anger, then your tongue isn't bridled. You don't have self-control, which is to say you're not free. The two things come to mind when we talk about an unbridled tongue. I think there's many others. But the first James has already talked about, and that would be anger, right? The first, sorry, are you someone who flies off the handle when people offend you or poke at your perceived rights that you have constructed for yourself? When people make mistakes around you, are you quick to forgive or are you quick to anger? Do you forgive mistakes freely or do you blow up on people for not being perfect like you? Do you hold your tongue when you feel like cursing others who have wronged you or as Christ commands us in the Sermon on the Mount, do you pray for those who persecute you? How do you use your tongue? Are you a slave to your anger? How do you respond when your parents give you a hard word or a correction or an instruction? Children, are you quick to hear and slow to talk back? I definitely wasn't. I was a miserable teenager. My tongue was never bridled for like a whole decade of my life. I was a slave to my tongue. The second thing here could be gossip. The Bible has some really, really serious words about gossip, even though it's a temptation to all of us. One of them we read in last week's Old Testament reading from Proverbs 6. Listen to this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and here's the last two. A false witness who breathes out lies, sounds like gossip, and one who sows discord among his brothers. In Romans 1, Paul puts gossip in the same category as adultery, murder, and idolatry. Psalm 101.5 says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Not only does God hate gossips, but he also considers those who give them an audience just as wicked. This is very serious. Listen to Proverbs 17.4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to the mischievous tongue. Are you quick to hear gossip? Are you, do you allow people to gossip around you and in your midst and with you? Right? If you do, you're just as guilty as they are. You are creating the environment where gossip can happen. And gossip is one of Satan's most deadliest tools to sow discord and destroy a friendship, a family, a school, I saw this for three years as a teacher. It's like the most terrible thing that could happen in our school, especially amongst those teenagers, was little clicks start gossiping back and forth. It just kills the culture of the school. And also a church. Satan will use gossip to destroy us from within. God hates it. And James says that your external show of religion is worthless if you partake in it. James says an unbridled tongue is one sign that your religion is worthless because it reveals that you're not a hearer, right? God's word has this to say about it, about anger, about cursing, about coarse language, about gossip, but you're not a doer of it. Are you a hearer but not a doer? You can't claim to be free in Christ. You're a slave to your anger. Those two are incompatible. You cannot serve both God and anger or ego. And so I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's something here for all of us 
I'm just thinking about this on my drive to church this morning. It's something I said to my wife this morning. How unbridled my tongue can be. Anger, cursing, trying to instruct others when you really ought to be instructed. This all comes in many forms. Gossips, lying, slander. All of us are tempted to this. And so James is going to pick up this theme again. Surprise, surprise. In chapter 3. And so I'm just going to ask you to look at the log in your own eye in the coming weeks before we even get there. Right? Start evaluating your own language and the words you speak to your husband, to your wife, to your kids or to your parents, to your coworkers, how you speak about people behind their back. I slandered my parents all throughout my teenage years. Children, how do you speak about your parents when they're not around? Right? Let's look at the log in our own eyes, put our hand on our mouth, open our ears and start taking God's word seriously about sins of the tongue. Repent of our arrogant refusal to humbly submit to the word of God, no matter what part of life it speaks to. And particularly, start praying that God's righteous commands about right speech would be beautiful to you. Ask him to bridle your tongue with the law of liberty so that with mouth shut in meekness, you will keep on receiving the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Please bow with me as we pray to these ends. Heavenly Father, we ask with the psalmist, never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. Father, help us to see your commands as as good and beautiful and true and desirable, just as the psalmist said, that our own speech would mirror your speech, that our anger would be slow as it mirrors your anger, that we would willingly Humbly receive with meekness everything the word has to say to our lives and from those who proclaim it. We pray that you would craft us into the kind of people who are able to persevere through sanctification, even when it's painful, even when it means tearing up rotten, rotten fruit in our life and, and getting it out of there, that we would persevere with steadfastness through the pain of changing and transforming and being made new because your Holy Spirit is able to cause us to delight in your will and walk in your ways. I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.